Good morning. I'm uh, honored to be here with you today. If you missed last week, we just kicked off a new series on fellowship. And Pastor Nathan talked to us about getting koinonia, the Greek word for fellowship, right. But if you're like me, you don't probably spend your Friday evenings hanging out with friends, playing board games, and wondering if you're getting koinonia right. Although, admittedly, I did do that last night, playing board games with friends, because I, probably because I was thinking about preaching today. But, uh, brief recap, what is koinonia? John Stott says that it comes from the adjective koinos, that means common. He says that koinonia bears witness to what we have in common and what we share as Christian men, women, and young people. He goes on to say that it bears witness to two complementary truths. First, koinonia expresses what we share in together, what we've received together, what we participate in together. That is the grace of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But koinonia also bears witness to what we share outward together, not only what we receive, but also what we give together. And today we're gonna talk more about the first of those things because if we don't get that first thing right of what we receive together, it will be impossible to get koinonia right. My prayer for us is that God will speak to us through his word. As Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So my prayer for today is that God will do just that, that he will speak to a way that is so unique to us, to our very core of our identity that meets us in the deepest place of our beings. And that in fact, God will show us, not only does he see us there, but he meets us there. And my prayer for today is that God will do what only he can do. So today we're gonna begin by doing something a little bit different than how we normally begin. We're gonna begin by drawing near together to the throne of grace and asking God, the King of all kings, to speak to us in a way that only he can. In a moment, we're going to take 60 seconds of silence and ask God to speak to us. And in this time, I want to invite you to bring whatever it is on your mind, whether you're distracted and you're thinking about what you wanna eat for lunch today, which I totally get, um, or if you've got a lot of things on your mind and your heart, pain, uh, hurt from a relationship or stress from work, whatever those things are, I invite you in this time to bring them before the Lord Ask him to speak to you and ask him to show you that he sees you. And when God speaks, things happen. When he spoke, the earth came into being. So I don't doubt that the 60 seconds may in fact be the most powerful time of this sermon for you. And after we do that 60 seconds, I'll invite you to stand if you're able as we read God's word together. Join me as we spend time in silence asking God to speak to us. Amen. If you're able, I invite you to join with me and stand in honor of reading of God's word. We'll be reading first from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25, followed by Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. So let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And now from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside 
every weight in sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I'll say this is the word of the Lord if you'll say thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, I ask today that you help us fix our eyes on you. Lord, I pray that you speak through me that the words that come to my mouth will only be of you and everything else will fall away. Open up our ears to hear your word. Open up our eyes to see a glimpse of you and your glorious gospel. And open up our hearts to receive it and believe it in a new way. And Lord, help us to live it out in community into this world that desperately needs it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may take a seat. So before we dive into our text today in the book of Hebrews, it's important to get some context for the book of Hebrews because the book of Hebrews is a very dense theological book filled with a lot of Greek logic and also a lot of references to Old Testament law. And so if you're unfamiliar with those, it can be a little bit hard to follow. But the author of Hebrews wrote it somewhere between 60 and 100 CE based on some context clues. I think that was probably somewhere between 60 and 70 CE. And there's one of the primary focuses that is particularly relevant for us is this notion that Jesus is the great high priest that the author of Hebrews lays out in this sermon of sorts. And the notion that Jesus is high priest has two particular implications for our passage today. First, that Jesus sacrificed his life for our sins and offered us forgiveness as once and for all. Hebrews chapter eight, when quoting Jeremiah 31, says that for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And the second way that Jesus is the high priest affects our interpretation is that through Jesus, we have previously restricted access to the throne of God. And to really get this, what this means, you have to kind of be familiar with the Old Testament law and what the temple was like. Because for you, this might seem like kind of normal things. God is good, right? God is loving. And so it's natural that he would forgive people because he sees their best intentions and he'd forgive them, right? And all sorts of people pray and talk to God. That's not really that, that crazy. But in this context, this is very revolutionary. Let me show you an image of the temple. So when it comes to Jesus sacrificing his life for our sins and offering us forgiveness once and for all, people in Jewish culture would come to this temple, um, which was the temple before 70 AD where, when it was destroyed, would come to this temple and have to offer sacrifices. The priests would have to do this. And what Jesus is saying here is that more than this sacrifice of a lamb or of a calf would help your forgiveness, Jesus offers to forgive you once and for all, for all eternity, not just the next time you mess up. Every single time there's complete forgiveness. And the second thing that is particularly relevant is this place in here that you can see in this next slide called the Holy of Holies. It's in the back of the temple. The Holy of Holies was the place where God's physical manifestation was supposed to dwell. It's where they kept the Ark of the Covenant, which housed the Ten Commandments. This place was so holy that only the great high priest, only the high priest was able to enter into it. And even the high priest was only able to enter into the Holy of Holies one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And even then, there was all sorts of specific rules and regulations on how they were supposed to be able to do that. And so when this passage says that Jesus is the great high priest and offers us access to the throne of God, and it says that he literally tore the veil. You'll see there, there's a veil that separates the holy of holies from the rest of the temple. That now, as the people of God, we have complete access to the throne of God. What that means for us is that what we did earlier, that we can actually pray and talk to God, and that the king of all kings also speaks to us. 
This is revolutionary stuff. So with this in mind, let's jump into our passage today. In Hebrews 10, we see three particular calls for us as Christians when it comes to fellowship. The first is to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. The earlier part of Hebrews 10 describes what this confession of hope is. This is really important. The confession of hope is that through our high priest, Jesus, those in Christ have forgiveness once and for all and have access, complete access to the throne of God. This confession of hope is the gospel, which as Tim Keller says is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. So we're called to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, or hold fast to the gospel without wavering. Secondly, we are to consider how to provoke or stir up one another to love and good deeds. And then third, to meet together and encourage one another. Hebrews 12, one to two, we see another one there. It says to have undivided attention on Jesus, laying aside everything that might distract you from this walk. So when we put all this together, we get this, and this is our first main point for the day, and it'll be on the screen. In community, we are called to constantly fix our eyes on Jesus and walk toward him without wavering. We see here a very difficult challenge for fellowship. We're called to hold fast to our faith, to the gospel, without wavering. I don't know about you, but if I have a bad day or even a bad couple of hours, my faith wavers. There are some days that I trust God a whole lot more than others. My faith fails me. We are also called to provoke one another to love and good works. This is a very interesting word, right? I know how to provoke my wife. I know how to annoy her to do the things that will push her buttons, walk out the door if she's trying to talk to me. That won't go over well. But what would it look like to provoke someone in a positive way? What would it look like if our fellowship was provocative? Now, I'm not talking about the Christian community that is provocative and makes everybody angry. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about provocative in the way in which it causes us all to consider what it means to actually love people and what it means to actually do good into this broken world. Does your fellowship do that? Does it cause you to consider how you are loving Jesus and to live that out into the world. And I'm not talking about a love that just enjoys one another's company, although that is important. I'm talking about an unconditional sort of love that is not based on what someone has done. A love that longs for what's best for someone, and what's best for them is that they know and follow Jesus. Is your fellowship doing that? In community, we are called to constantly fix our eyes on Jesus and walk without wavering. So, all right, walk on the right path, Have a good faith, meet with community, so go to church. Do all these things and you'll be good, right? Let me ask you this. How loving do you need to be to love the way God calls you to love? How good does your fellowship have to be to be as good as God wants it to be? How kind do you have to be when someone cuts you off to be as kind as God calls you to be? How patient do you have to be with your children when they're yelling at you? How self-controlled do you have to be? How good do you have to be to be good enough with God? Well, you might think, well, God knows our hearts, right? He knows our intentions. He knows we're trying our best. If we're just really like Jesus in everything we do, then we'll be good. So let's track with this for just a little bit. Imagine that you are in the front of the sanctuary, right down here, right past where Carol is. This will be on the screen. And that Jesus is right outside the door. 
All you have to do to get to Jesus is walk a straight path right outside the sanctuary. How hard do you think that would be? How off do you think you'd have to be? I did a little geometry this week, which is dangerous when your student minister gets the hand of geometry in Photoshop, but I did. Four degrees. Actually, less than four degrees, but this is, this is four degrees to give you a perspective on a circle. That purple line represents four degrees, and the yellow is zero degrees. Circle's 360 degrees, right? So four degrees to give you perspective. I'm super bow-legged. Um, my feet naturally go at about like this. I am far off from four degrees just based on how I stand. So um, imagine now that you're starting in the same fixed point and walking four degrees out the sanctuary to meet Jesus right there. What do you think happens? You start hitting the pews about halfway down the aisle. Four degrees. The word sin means to miss the mark. And if the aim and goal is God, who is the perfect example of perfection and glorious goodness, the tiniest misstep can have drastic consequences. Okay, so let's take this a little bit further. Imagine, hypothetically, you were trying to go from the east to west of Tennessee. That's about 440 miles at its longest point. How far off do you think you'd be then if you were four degrees off? 30 miles. Now, that's not too bad. Maybe a city off, if you're in a car on the interstate, that may be 30 minutes. What about across country? Imagine that you are starting on the coast of California and you're trying to go to the Green Line, which is to the coast of Virginia. You don't have a GPS, so you happen to be four degrees off. One friend goes one way, one friend goes four degrees the other way. How far off do you think you're then? In reality, you are in three entirely different states. Okay, well, let's take it a little further. What if you were to start at that same fixed point in California and to go all the way around the circumference of the world, trying to end back in that exact same place? Just four degrees off would put you over 1,730 miles off from the destination you were trying to get. You would have missed your mark by the vertical length of the contiguous United States. Plus an extra 150 miles, but who's counting? That's right, I'm counting. Now, let's go interstellar here. Imagine this little dot on here is the Earth, and that's the moon, and close to relative size. So I apologize that they're small. It's hard to get that far of a distance in relative size on a screen. The NASA says that the average distance from Earth to the moon is somewhere around 238,855 miles. So imagine that you're trying to go to the moon, just that straight line. People have done it plenty of times. By the time you would get to the moon, you're looking at being over 16,500 miles off. That's the equivalent of a little more than two Earths in diameter. Now imagine you're going to Mars, because why not? Everybody wants to go to Mars. It's estimated that in theory, the closest that we will ever get to Mars is around 33.9 million miles from Earth. If you were to start from a fixed point on Earth and one trajectory was straight and the other one was four degrees off, by the time you get to Mars, you're looking at 2.3 million miles off. That's the equivalent of almost 300 Earths in diameter. Now, hypothetically, oh, you can see it on here, uh, 18, that's 18 Earths. So if, if you were to stack this screen up another 16 and a half times or so, that's about the perspective. The little orange dot that you can't really see on the bottom, that's Mars. So you're looking at being pretty far off your point. So last one, imagine hypothetically that we were going to travel to the next solar system from Earth. 
For the past 20 years, astronomers have been discovering hundreds of planets around different other stars, and some of these stars are hosts for multiplayer planetary systems. Of the solar systems discovered so far, the closest one is around the star named Epsilon Iridani, which is only 10 and a half light years away, although that's still about 100 trillion kilometers. How far off do you think four degrees would put you then? Somewhere around 0.73 light years. To give you a little perspective, that's 4 trillion, 308 billion, 412 million, 700,000 miles off. Or well over 544 million Earths in diameter. So I hope you can understand I can't fit that on a screen. That's a whole lot of Earths. If, though, you were to choose Pluto as the outer marker of our solar system, you're still looking at 579 of our solar system stacked up next to each other of how far off you would be. What, while it might look like it's minuscule in the concept of eternity, sin or missing the mark has drastic consequences. It may not seem like much when you're just trying to find Jesus at the end of the sanctuary, but in the concept of eternity, one misstep can drastically change the entire trajectory of your life. You and your running mates are bound to get off track. One degree off your focus and you've missed. If you mess up once, you've missed. If you get upset at your kids just once, you've missed it. If you start putting something in the place of Jesus, you've missed it. If you get more caught up in your political ideology than about Jesus and being the awe of the gospel, you've missed it. If you're more focused on being a good person, even being a good Christian, than being in awe of the person of Jesus Christ, you've missed the mark. While it might not seem like much in the concept of eternity, it has drastic consequences. You and your running mates are bound to get off track. But even if you could, do it right. Scripture tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter how old or young you are, all of us have missed the mark. If the worst thing you ever did was have a bad thought about someone who cut you off in traffic, you've missed the mark. And I'll tell you, I've missed the mark a whole lot more than that. But wait, there is hope. Let's read the previous verses in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see that? Jesus made a way when there was no way, not just straightening our path that was slightly bent, but actually forging an entire new path so that we now can have access to God, the King of all kings. Scripture tells us that he tore that veil, the veil that we looked at earlier that separates the holy of holies from the high priest. He tore the veil, so not just the high priest, but all of us as the people of God now have access to the presence of God. You see, Jesus was perfect when we were broken. He gave us hope when we were hopeless and gave us life when we were spiritually dead. He gives us joy in our mourning. Hebrews tells us that the ever faithful God offers us complete forgiveness, not just of the physical things we've done, but this passage says that he even sprinkles our hearts clean. Don't miss that. Any evil or wrong intention or thought that you've had, and I can guarantee everyone in here has had a couple bad thoughts. I've probably had a couple since I was preaching the sermon. Jesus sprinkles even our hearts clean. 
It's a forgiveness that's not just forgiven when you do the sacrifice. It's a forgiveness that is from everything past, present, and future. That's the forgiveness that Christ offers us. This right here is the gospel. We missed the mark and fell infinitely short of the perfection and glory of God, but God, being rich in mercy and love toward us, made a way through his son, Jesus. And in him, we are far more loved and accepted in Christ than we could ever hope. And this is our third point. Knowing we would miss the mark, Jesus made a way for us to enter into the presence of God together and invited us into his family. The best fellowship in the world isn't going to solve your problems. There's not enough good fellowship in the world to do that. But Jesus did. He invites you to be a part of his family. And now fellowship becomes the journey of walking alongside one another with our eyes fixed firmly on Jesus. You see, this is why the gospel is absolutely essential to community. Because when we become Christians, we get adopted into the family of God. What that means is if we are Christians, that we are now united by a blood that is far stronger than any familial blood. That we are brothers and sisters in Christ, not just with one another, but brothers and sisters with, in Christ with people all around the globe. We're not just walking together. We are united as family. To do fellowship right, you have to get this or you miss the entire point. Because the goal of fellowship isn't just to make you a better person or to make your life better, although I do believe those things will happen. The goal is Jesus and his worship. You see, our confession isn't what saves us. Hebrews 10 doesn't tell us to hold on to our confession of hope, to hold on to the gospel because the gospel might waver. The gospel never wavers. Our confession of hope is in an ever faithful and constant God. This passage tells us who bear this confession not to waver. Our God is faithful when we are faithless. He is steadfast in our doubt and he is constant when our minds are constantly changing about everything we think. The gospel, this right here is our confession of hope because he who promised is faithful. Our call as Christians is not simply to have faith that doesn't move, but to put our faith in the God who never moves. Knowing we would miss the mark, Jesus made a way for us to enter into the presence of God. And lastly, and this is our fourth point for today, true Christian community is intended to be a reminder and reflection of the gospel. True Christian community should remind us always of who God is and who we are because of that, and also serve as a glimpse of the redemptive love of God into this world. It's a hope that anyone can get in on. This reminder of the gospel that we are far more broken than we could imagine, yet infinitely more loved and accepted in Christ than we could hope. This is a reminder for all of us that we can't do it alone. And secular science also shows that we can't do it alone. In a 2001 study, Bergen and McConaughey found that there was no relationship between private devotion and life satisfaction. In other words, being spiritual but not religious, having your own personal faith and reading your Bible, doing all those things, but not actually being involved in a regular Christian community was shown in studies to not have any lasting impact on your life satisfaction. On the other hand, in a 2010 study, researchers Lim and Putnam found that frequent religious service attendance was positively related to life satisfaction. In other words, people that regularly were involved in community, in a religious community, tended to have higher levels of life satisfaction. We can't do it alone, and we're not meant to do it alone. In fact, it is better to not do it alone. Christian community serves as a reminder of the gospel in this way. 
So here's some practical ways that your community can learn to serve as a reminder of the gospel. Number one, preach the gospel to yourself and to your community daily. The gospel is good news for everyone. We all need to be reminded of the gospel daily. You never reach a point in your faith when you have arrived where you no longer need Jesus. In fact, I truly believe that the more you come to know the glory of God, the more that you come to encounter and spend time with Jesus, you will be infinitely more in awe of him and more astounded that he could still love you and offer you the grace that he does. When someone struggles with guilt, you can preach the gospel to them. Lead them to repentance, and then after, help them not to dwell in it, because if they spend their time just focusing on how they can do better, they're missing the mark, because it's becoming more self-centered on their behavior than Jesus-centered on his behavior, on what he did for us on that cross. Help them to understand when they have repented that now their sins are forgiven and their call is to get up and walk the race with their eyes fixed on Jesus. Maybe someone struggles with insecurity. A lot of us do. Instead of just telling someone, you know, I don't think you're dumb. You're actually really smart. That can be helpful. But remind them where their actual deep worth comes from. Not just that things will be okay, but that their worth comes from being fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God uniquely to bear something about him into this world that desperately needs to see who God is. And remind them of what that is. And if they're in Christ, remind them that their worth is spoken for by God who set, the God who calls them his children. The truth is, oftentimes we get really insecure when we forget that God sees us. But the truth is he saw us in our worst. He sees us now and he always will see us. The second thing we need to do is to learn to confess in community. Because if you want to know the full love of God but aren't fully known, it's really hard to feel like you're fully loved. Because if you are told you're loved, but people don't actually know you, it feels like the love is somewhat of a performance-driven thing as long as they like hanging out with you. When we learn to confess in community, we learn to experience the full love of God. Hebrews 12 talks about laying aside every weight and sin that clings so closely in our races. And to lay aside the things that so easily ensnare us. This comes from a Greek word that could also be interpreted as easily distracting. In other words, if you're trying to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, what are the things that are veering you off track? It doesn't have to be bad things. Are you more focused on doing all the right things and focused on the person and character of Jesus? Are you more focused on your political ideology? Are you more focused on being a Baptist than on being committed to the gospel? Our faith is about Jesus. We have to keep that central. And when we learn to confess in community the things in which we are starting to veer off track towards, that our community can help correct us. The third thing we need to do is to encourage. To encourage one another to remember the gospel and live as if it's true, because if it is true, if God really did send his son to die for us and invite us into his family, that changes everything. Because if he calls us as Christian saints, well, I should live saintly. I shouldn't live in sin. That changes everything. And then lastly, We are called to be consistent. Hebrews 10 says to meet together all the more as the day is coming. It doesn't matter how far along you are on your walk or how great of a Christian you are. There is never a point where you don't need community. Even Jesus lived life with community. It's essential. If you have the gospel central in your community, it looks sort of like this. Here's a picture 
on the screens of the sanctuary again. These X's on there represent your community. The cloud of witnesses, if you will. The people that are walking with you, the people that have gone before you, and the people that will go after you. True Christian community helps you walk on the path towards Jesus and also illuminates the path for you, reminding you of who made it in the first place. As you start to veer off, your community kind of serves as roadblocks to keep you from going too far and points you back to what truly matters. True Christian community is intended to be a reminder and reflection of the gospel. Yesterday, we celebrated the life of a great saint who was in the great cloud of witnesses of Hebrews 12.1, Jean Jolly. And I can't help but think of the wonderful way in which she loved her family and her church. This was a reflection of the gospel to all she knew, both in the church and outside the church. Her life and the way she did fellowship was a reflection of gospel to the world. Craig Van Gelder, who's a professor at Luther Seminary, said that throughout Scripture we see a theme of the role of God's people in his mission. He said that their communal life was to bear witness continually to the redemptive purposes of God so that this redemption would be available for all. He goes on. He says, redemption is not just about some special people being chosen as an end to itself. God's election of Israel, and I might add of us, as particular people was for the purpose of bringing the good news about God to all the nations. And I hope this is what happens with us and with our fellowship, that people see a community that is deeply committed to being honest about who we are, to confessing our sins to one another, not as a way to make us sit and wallow in our guilt, but as a way to help us look more at Jesus. I hope that we are committed to living as if we are children of God, and if children, then co-heirs with Christ according to a promise, and sealed by his Holy Spirit. This is revolutionary stuff we're talking about here. A community that is gospel-centered serves as a reflection of God into the world in this way. It invites people into a love that is far more wonderful than they could ever imagine because it's not based on anything they did, anything they've done, or anything they ever could do. It's based wholly upon who God is, a love that is never-ending, a love that never wavers or stops, a love that is constant. You couldn't imagine him loving you more or less. In fact, I would say he loves you far more than you could ever imagine. That is our confession of hope. That is constant even when we doubt. Having the gospel centered in our fellowship is essential to get Koinonia right. Our community should be a reminder and reflection of the gospel here and in our world. I'm going to end with this passage from Hebrews 12. I'll be up front in a moment if you need someone to talk with or pray with. I'm going to invite Jan Bennett to also come up here as well if you need someone to pray with you. If you want to know more about the gospel, maybe you haven't confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you don't know that, I would love to talk with you about that. If you've been living as if those things aren't true and you want to talk about what it looks like to live that practically, I'd love to talk with you or pray with you. If you've never been baptized or been doing life alone, I'd love to talk with you about that as well. We'd love to have you be a part of our church family. We're not perfect, but come join us as we learn to stumble together towards that finish line, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. The gospel unites us. It's firm, always was, and always will be. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says it like this. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen.